HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register now for PASA's 2024 conference in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Don't miss over 70 educational sessions on farming and food systems, plus an expansive trade show. Learn more at pasafarming.org slash HRN2024. Hello, and welcome to another season of Cutting the Curd. This is Jessica, and I'm here today joined by Janet Fletcher. Janet Fletcher is the creator of the Planet Cheese blog, which lands in email inboxes of the cheese obsessed everywhere each week. Since the early 2000s, when she first created the first of its kind weekly cheese column for the San Francisco Chronicle, Janet has written about hundreds of cheeses and led thousands of people through guided tastings. She is the author or co-author of more than 30 books on food and beverage and has won three James Beard Awards. We're going to talk about her career and reflect on the availability of cheeses over the years, including the sadness when a cheese is no longer produced and the joy of discovering new cheese makers making some noise. Janet, welcome back to Cutting the Curd. Thanks, Jessica. What a beautiful introduction. Thank you. Well, I have been receiving Planet Cheese forever. I even have saved many of them, and I refer back to a lot of them when I'm preparing for my own cheese classes. And I do remember your San Francisco Chronicle uh, article, which was so wild because it was about cheese and and, uh, so singular a topic, but so wide and varied. And, um, And you've also written many books. Can you tell us about how you got started writing about cheese? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, as you mentioned, I'm a food writer, and that's how I've made my living ever since uh, I left the restaurant world where I was for a couple of years. And uh, I was just always looking for the next trend to write my next book about. And I think it was, you know, late 1990s, early 2000s, when I noticed that restaurants were doing more with cheese. They were, I mean, in the old days, a cheese course in a restaurant was like a cold piece of brie out of the fridge because nobody mm-hmm. ever asked for it. And restaurants had started to do more. Like Zuni Cafe in San Francisco had a little cheese course. There was always a couple of interesting cheeses that they were serving with some kind of interesting condiment or a, you know, a pretty presentation. 
So I thought maybe there could be a little book on the cheese course, how to not how to cook with cheese, but how to uh, take a cheese and dress it up a little bit by putting it in a salad or, or making a special bread to go with it, something like that, a special condiment. So I wrote that book called The Cheese Course. I think it was my late 90s. And uh, that led to the Chronicle column. I was already writing for the Chronicle about food, but they said, hey, <laughs> since you're a cheese expert, why don't you uh, do a cheese column for us? So that's how I got started. And, you know, when you have to write about something every week, you learn pretty quickly uh, about it. So you know, I'm just really self-taught in the cheese world. I certainly didn't grow up with great cheese. And did you find back then, were you writing mostly about European cheeses? Or, I mean, you were in, you were in like one of the like food centers of the country. You were in the Bay Area. So was it, was there a big cheese scene there or were you looking, you know, finding mostly cheeses that were coming from abroad? Well, yeah, I, I suppose in the early days it was mostly imported cheeses, but we had already Laura Chanel was uh, thriving. Uh, Calgary Creamery was just getting started. I remember writing about Red uh, Red Hawk. <laughs> um, you know, that was one of my first columns, I think, for the Chronicle. And we were so excited wow. about this uh, a wash rind cheese coming out of uh, West Marin in California. So yeah, the, the domestic thing was just getting going. And I think I've kind of ridden that wave of uh, interest in domestic cheese and an incredible influx of uh, imported cheeses that you know, weren't here in the late 90s, early 2000s. That's, uh, we can talk about that later, but there's just been such a, uh, an explosion of cheeses from Europe. And it's interesting, too, because there's the East Coast, West Coast um, cheese journey as well, because you talked about Red Hawk. And I, I mean, we didn't have access to some of the cheeses that you were talking about in the late 90s in California. We didn't have access to those out here in New York and vice versa. Um, so I think that's really interesting with timing, too. How many cheeses do you think you've written about? Oh, goodness. Well, I've tasted a lot more than I've written about. <laughs> I don't write about every cheese I taste. But, you know, if you think I've been doing Planet Cheese for 10 years, that's probably 500 cheeses or more. The Chronicle, I mean, well over a thousand, <laughs> well over a thousand. And then you do um, cheese tastings and you'll, you often, you know, feature those on your social media and in Planet Cheese, your blog, your website, where you have like five or six cheeses on a plate. So I can only imagine that the number just skyrockets. Yeah, I haven't counted, but uh, there's a lot of cheese under my belt. <laughs> so given that, uh, it happens from time to time that you find out that a cheese that we've gotten used to, that we love, that may be something we turn to on special occasions, or maybe we just always have in our refrigerator, is no longer available. And this is part of the long history of cheese, but it's also a history of, of the people who make the cheese. And it hits me really hard when that happens. I remember when Landaf uh, and Landaf Creamery closed, and it was like, my gosh, I'm, I'm not going to have Landaf again. Um, what is it like for you when that happens? over this 10-year course of being deeply involved in cheese? Well, yeah, you know, it hurts. It's a loss. And sometimes we don't even realize it's gone until we go to look for it, and it's not yeah. there. And, uh, you know, things change, and you have to allow people to 
make the business decisions that they have to make. But it's you know, it's very sad to to lose any consumer product that you love. You know, <laughs> I have this is kind of a maybe a stupid example, but I there's a particular moisturizer I used to. Uh, love. And about a year ago, I went to the store to get some more and it wasn't there. And I went online to see if I could buy it online and it wasn't there. And I dug a little deeper and I realized the company had discontinued it. And I thought, you, you, you can't do that. <laughs> I love this moisturizer. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, but that's the way it is. And I think that a consumer, maybe, you know, cheese is a little bit different than a moisturizer because oftentimes we know the people behind the cheese or mm-hmm. we you know we've read about them we know that there are people behind the cheese maybe we've been to the place where it was made um, we we have a more personal association with that cheese than we do with other consumer products so yeah it hurts a little bit more but um, it, it's just going to happen and it's uh, you know it's especially hurts when it's something like Landaff where um, you know, COVID uh, was really their death knell, and mm-hmm. they just could not get beyond that. Um, so that's if, you, if there's pain for somebody's you know, personal loss, for somebody's business loss. In November, you wrote a Planet Cheese uh, post. Uh, you had it titled "Farewell to Two Favorites," and um, this that Planet Cheese email is the one that really made me start thinking about having a conversation with you about you know, partly about like what happens when cheese is, when we say goodbye to cheese and to cheesemakers. The farewell to two favorites was referring to the passing of cheesemaker Matthew Bridgeford and about the announcement by the Fletcher family, no relation, uh, that they were ceasing production of Burkeswell, the beloved sheep's milk cheese from the UK. And I really haven't stopped thinking about it um, and about the number of cheeses that are not made anymore for various reasons. And it, and it raises a lot of thoughts. When writing a piece like that, um, what comes up for you? Well, I think I had uh, two motivations, maybe or maybe more than that. I mean, with Matthew Bridgeford's death, I wanted to acknowledge it, uh, certainly alert um, the cheese community to it. And I think in a way I was doing it a little bit for his family because I wanted them to know how much he was appreciated and admired and how much we will miss uh, him and the family's cheeses. Uh, there just there was no succession at that mm-hmm. at that farm. It's been the family farm has been there for two hundred years, and they will keep the family farm going. They'll keep, I think, doing uh, beef cattle. But they just did not feel like they could afford. His widow didn't feel like she could afford to keep the the, the dairy going. And I just wanted to let her know how much we were. Uh, many of us in the cheese community admired him and admired his cheeses like a Mirabella and they will be missed. Uh, and so that was that motivation. Burkeswell, I mean, that is just one of my favorite cheeses of all time. And I hadn't had it in a long time because it hasn't been coming to the U S but it just really, um, really struck me that that was, we weren't going to have it anymore. And that's because the cheesemaker is just tired uh, he, it's just so much work, uh, and he never got any time off. And I have to also believe that there was, um, and I know this from talking to a, a representative of, of uh, British cheeses in the UK, that you know it was an ex- very expensive cheese. It was always the most expensive cheese when we did have it in the US. And 
you know, I don't think sales were booming. So it's kind of hard to keep up that work schedule when you're not getting rewarded for it. So I, I, I think that's really what, what happened to Berkswell. There just wasn't enough return for the amount of work that it entailed. Yeah, I, as you pointed out, um, with these two examples, um, one is a story of exit strategies for business and planning for the unexpected, but also sometimes for the inevitable in the case of farms, uh, farmstead cheese operations that maybe don't have anybody to pass the farm down to um, or who choose not to do that. Um, then there's the story of, of burnout um, that comes not just for those managing a herd of animals for farmstead, but also just people who constantly are in the struggle to source milk. Um, and, um, and then just the daily grind of producing cheese and, and labor. I mean, labor is, you know, definitely a challenge, um, finding people to, you know, constantly finding enough staff, um, and training and retention. Um, and, you know, so in all of this, I keep thinking about like, okay, well, imagine a, a, a world where a suddenly Comte is gone and it, you know, like we just don't have those systems in the United States. Where are we as a cheese making country? Um, is there, you know, is there something that we can do about um, supporting, you know, the cheese makers and the longevity of, of cheeses? Um, or is it, or is that just the way it is? And, and that's the uniqueness of the cheese making in the United States. Well, you know, compared to Europe, <laughs> compared to France, we are a young cheesemaking country, and we don't have those um, support systems like Conte has, where, you know, hundreds of people are making the same cheese, and it's name protected, and they all have to follow the same recipe, and use the same breeds of cows. And I, I don't think we'll get to that. I don't think we necessarily want to get to that, because mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's limiting. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, it, we are so individualistic in this country. That's sort of who we are as Americans. And people want to make their own thing. They don't want to make what their neighbor's making. They certainly don't want to make it uh, the way somebody tells them to make it. So I, I don't think we will get to that kind of appellation system. And I don't even think it would be desirable. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I do think uh, what, we have a, do have a lot of problems with milk supply. Uh, I don't know how to fix that, but we just lost a um, a really great California sheep cheese called Eureka, E-W-E, Eureka, uh, mm-hmm. because the creamery can't get sheep milk. I thought it had a supply, and then the sheep, and then the dairy guy, you know, the sheep dairying guy uh, had business problems. So there goes your sheep milk supply. So, uh, you know, sheep milk is really perilous in this country, and goat milk, too, is there's more mm-hmm. demand than there is supply. So, you know, I don't, you know, I asked the cheesemaker once, I said if, recently, I said, if there's so much demand for goat milk, why aren't more people going into the goat dairying business? Uh, and he said, because there's a lot of goat milk now that's coming in frozen, frozen milk or frozen curd from Europe, from Israel, really from all around the world. And you can't compete with that as, as selling fresh goat milk. So mm-hmm. you know, this is like an international, you know, business problem that I don't, you know, I don't know how to fix. <laughs> but, right. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, um, you know, I know we've had the formation of more, uh, cheese councils, um, you know, California and Wisconsin, we've talked about those very often on the, on the show. There's also the Massachusetts cheese guild. We recently had, um, a guest, uh, last season talk about that. There's one in, you know, in Maine, um, New York is trying to start one. Um, so hopefully we start to see, um, more people getting together. Um, maybe that's where the conversations happen. Um, yeah. I mean, c- certainly the guilds are, um, some guilds are stronger than others. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to join a guild as a, as a cheesemaker, you have to pay dues and you're already mm-hmm. pinched and you have to devote some time and you're already pressed for time. So I think some of the guilds have struggled to, to stay vital but one of the good things some of the guilds have done is a, a consumer outreach, like consume, like festivals. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we have a very lively one here in California, the California Artisan um, Cheese Festival in March, which is coming up. And uh, that is put on by the guild. So these consumer-facing events, I think, are really uh, helpful and get consumers excited about their regional cheeses. So let's switch gears and, and have some good news <laughs> because um, some cheeses do endure, some find their way back um, after an absence. And you've written recently about uh, Franklin's Teleme. Can you tell us about Franklin's oh. Teleme and this wonderful um, story? Yes. I mean, uh, I have never had so much uh, consumer outreach than about that cheese people were writing me constantly asking me where they could find it where is it gone when's it coming back Teleme is a, a cheese that um, is a west coast or california icon it really there is no european equivalent although it somewhat resembles a crescenza italian crescenza or stracchino uh the uh family name of the producer is peluso p-e-l-u-s-o and Franklin uh, uh, Peluso, what was his first name? Giovanni Peluso, I believe, immigrant from Italy who created Telemé back in the um, early 1900s. And it's thought that he was modeling it after a crescenza or a stracchino. Um, for the longest time, it was something that was just known in the Italian-American community. People would put it on their polenta. Uh, it, you know, it's just in every Italian-American deli on the West Coast. And then the, um, you know, son and grandson um, took it over. And finally, about 10 years ago, Franklin Peluso, who was still making it, decided he didn't want to make it anymore. So he sold the, um, he sold the company. He sold the name. Uh, so there's still a Peluso Teleme, but it's not made by the Peluso family. They don't have the rights to their own name. So mm-hmm. Franklin Peluso, he had, he had second thoughts, <laughs> um, seller's remorse. I mean, he couldn't get the company back, but he could start making Teleme again. So Franklin uh, did start making Teleme again about uh, maybe eight, eight or ten years ago. And um, he uh, called it Franklin's Teleme since he couldn't use his own name. And it was fabulous. It was just like before. Uh, but then he also he gave up and uh, moved to Maine, stopped making Teleme. And that's when I started getting all these people asking me, where is the Teleme? It had such a cult following. And about uh, recently, he has moved back to California. He has had a lot of trouble finding a production facility. But he finally has 
He's got his son working with him. And about three or four months ago, he reintroduced it. And everybody is so excited. It's, uh, I, it's, I, there's nothing like it. It's like a little soft pillow of cheese. Have you had it, Jessica? You know, I've had it the first time around <laughs> before the move to Maine. Um, and to be honest with you, I, I'm, I, I'm assuming that, that, that it was his, um, and not the other, um, telling me you're just talking about, but I do, I think the comparison to the Italian cheese is the perfect one. I remember it being kind of yeasty and like flowery. Um, it doesn't have really a rind. He dusts it with rice flour. That's what I remember. Yeah. yeah, That's Franklin's Talamay. It's very slumpy. Yeasty is a great Mm -hmm. description. It melts beautifully and uh, there's just nothing like it. And so we're very glad to have Franklin's Talamay back. That's wonderful. It's interesting when you were talking about the history of the cheese, it also made me think of another California iconic original Vela Dry Jack which, um, again, I just like can't imagine it being made anywhere else. (laughs) Yeah. That's another cheese that really is an American original. There's nothing like it that I can think of in Europe. Nothing even really close. Maybe Mm -hmm. sort of like the mountain cheeses of Northern Italy, the hard, dry mountain cheeses, but it's very much its own thing. Uh, it's, uh, coated on the outside with cocoa and black pepper and oil. And so it's got, you know, it's got a very distinctive look, uh, Mm -hmm. and, um, it's hard, it's nutty, it's intense, and I hope they can keep it going. Um, Igvela, who was sort of the, you know, the patriarch of the family and made the cheese for many years, passed away maybe eh, quite a while ago, eight or seven mm-hmm. or eight years ago. And um, I think the kids are trying to keep it going, and I don't know yeah. what their plans are for the future. Yeah, I haven't seen it out here in a, in a number of years, actually. Um, but I, yeah, you can never forget what it looks like. There's no other rind like it. Yeah. Um, so we're going we're gonna to pause for a word from one of our great sponsors, and then we'll be back to speak some more with Janet Fletcher. Want to cultivate farms and food systems that nourish, heal, and empower? Register now for PASA's 2024 Sustainable Agriculture Conference. Discover resources, services, and products at our expansive trade show, and explore more than 70 educational sessions on climate-smart practices, food justice, soil health, and more. Featuring a dynamic lineup of speakers, including Reginaldo Hasle Marroquin, farmer and founder of the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance and CEO of Tree Range Farms, and Reverend Dr. Heber M. Brown III, pastor, community organizer, and founder of the Black Church Food Security Network. Find your community at PASA's 33rd Annual Conference in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 8th through 10th. Register now at pasafarming.org slash HRN2024. That's P-A-S-A farming.org slash HRN2024. And we're back, Cutting the Curd with Janet Fletcher. She is the creator of Planet Cheese. We'll uh, make sure you all know how to sign up for that if you don't already um, receive it in your inbox every week. Um, But we'll get that information out at the end of the episode and on our website. Um, But I... I'm loving this conversation. Um, you know, we are talking about cheese availability and what happens when we say goodbye to cheeses and then rediscover ones. And, you know, we're a huge country in the United States and we have a lot of cheeses that aren't known in many parts of the country. And so that's still exciting to be able to discover new cheese and this vast landscape. Um, for instance, uh, 
Nicasio Valley cheese is not easy to find on the East Coast. And they make such beautiful cheeses and an array of cheeses. And whenever I do come across one, I get so excited. Um, And then I remember a Planet Cheese you wrote about Mystic Cheese Company. And um, they're based in Connecticut. And you were new to, it was new to you, although I had been enjoying their cheese here for um, a couple of years before that. So when you're um, introducing readers wherever they live to producers from other parts of the country, and you're traveling to conferences and to festivals, um, do you notice certain things regarding cheese or like, do you hit up the cheese counters? Um, What observations do you have to share with us about discovering new cheeses? Well, actually, it's interesting you mentioned Mystic Cheese uh, because that's how I discovered them. I was at an American Cheese Society conference in Providence, and we took a little field trip and went to visit some cheese producers in Connecticut, and uh, one of them was Mystic Cheese, and this would have been several years ago. They were making Mm -hmm. cheese in a container, a shipping shipping container. container. Mm -hmm. On a farm. I had never been in such a tiny creamery. We all got to go in the tiny creamery like one at a time. It was like a dollhouse, but they had everything they needed to make cheese. And it was uh, affordable. The milk was right outside their door because they were on a dairy farm. And man, does uh, Brian know how to make great cheese. I mean, he has a resume as long as my arm. And uh, he has worked in Italy for many years for many different people. for Calabro in Connecticut, and he just is a master. And uh, it was so fun to discover him then in the shipping container and then to, and then to uh, kind of follow his journey. He's now in a much bigger facility and making just fabulous uh, cheeses, hard ones, and um, that wonderful soft one called Melinda May. Of course, I go to cheese counters when I, <laughs> when yes. I that's like the first place I go to the farmer's market and to the local cheese counter. Uh huh. Uh huh. And do you find um, when you get back to California after these visits, like, do you do you just think about like, do cheeses stick with you? And it's just like, gosh, I wish these cheese. I remember that cheese. I wonder if I'll ever see it out here. <laughs> like, yeah, like, yeah. I had a strong that strong feeling after going to uh, Vancouver, and about five or six years ago, and going to cheese counter there and seeing all these great Canadian cheeses that we never see. And that mm-hmm. really almost made me angry because I know there's something like geopolitical going on, uh, why we do not get uh, Canadian cheeses in the U.S. with very few exceptions. So we're being, it had, you know, has to do with tariffs and uh, quotas and, uh, you know, beyond my, you know, ability to understand. But uh, we don't get uh, a we do not get the full picture of what Canada is doing. They make, they make fabulous cheeses and we should be able to get them and they should be able to get our cheeses. They're just across the border. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that was, you know, that was frustrating. Yeah. Future episodes. That's what we need to delve into a little bit more about those. And um, let's switch, let's switch to Europe for a second because um, we were talking about the, you know, the systems that, uh, you know, keep cheese production very protected over there. And, um, and, you know, and those cheeses have endured, but not without, without changes and challenges. And I think about Stitchelton and I think about, you know, some of these other cheeses that are being made, um, 
that wouldn't necessarily fall into the rules of the consortiums. And then we have cheesemakers from outside the United States who move here and talk about the freedom to innovate and how wonderful that freedom is. Um, what's happening abroad? What Can you tell us about some things you might be noticing about what's happening abroad? Yeah, one's good, one's not so good. Uh, Switzerland, I think, is really exciting. Some of the most delicious cheeses we're getting in the U.S. these days are from Switzerland because of their history and their uh, you know, for many years they were restricted in what they could make by the by the government, and that ended in the year 2000. So for the last 20, 25 years, they've been able to innovate, and we're seeing just some fabulous cheeses coming in from Switzerland. I think almost, a, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but like, yeah. as a rule, if it comes from Switzerland, it's going to be <laughs> well made. They are just the best, most consistent cheesemakers. I just tasted a new one called Rock Flower which is doing really well in the U.S. Um, and, and part of it, uh, of the success of Swiss cheeses in the U.S., is the, import, the importers who are bringing them in uh, so, um, with such passion. And uh, the U.K. is a bit of a, you know, it's a different picture. We used to get great cheeses from the U.K. through Neil's Yard Dairy. Uh, we see very few of them now. I had an interview in Planet Cheese a while back with uh, David Lockwood, who runs Neil's Yard Dairy, um, an American who runs Neil's Yard Dairy uh, from the UK, about why we see so few of these cheeses. And it, it comes down um, mostly to cost. They're just very, mm-hmm. very expensive. And he, I thought David had an interesting perspective because he was not, uh, he didn't say consumers weren't buying them. He felt like retailers were not taking a chance on them and getting behind mm-hmm. them so that they retailers were not ordering them so consumers didn't even have the chance to <laughs> to choose. Um, so mm-hmm. I'd love to see more cheeses from the UK. Uh, Switzerland's great. But, you know, Jessica, the other thing that's so wonderful that really didn't exist uh, 25 years ago is the um, level of uh, passion and competition in the cheese import business. So we have companies like Forever Cheese on the East Coast and Food Matters again. These are names consumers don't know because they're the they're the imported distributor, but they are bringing in so many small production village cheeses, risky cheeses because they have to introduce them and sell them. Mm-hmm. And it's, we have a cheese counter imported cheeses now that just blow me away, and we have you know, so much more than we had twenty years ago. Very true. Very true. And just recently, there's been um, a lot of attention being given to Spain. And, um, you know, just in delving into like, you know, world history, when you have a disruption, like a war, a world war, um, or even a regional war, um, and uh, a regime change, like we saw in Spain with the end of the uh, Franco's dictatorship, and then you see how the... um, cheese industry and the agricultural industry bounces back or doesn't. Um, and how that, you know, we, those are countries that lost a lot of diversity in their smaller cheese productions, more farmstead operations. And now they're coming back with such interesting originals, um, that I'm hoping we're going to get to have, um, here at least, you know, even if it's just seasonally, like, I feel like what you were saying about the British cheeses, you know, they used to, used to see a lot of um, cheeses come from the UK around the holidays. 
and you're right. I've noticed fewer and fewer in terms of the diversity of cheese um, coming in, which is a shame. But I do think they're getting a lot of press um, lately. Um, I think Culture yeah. Magazine just pushed uh, pushed out some content about um, Spain. So oh, yeah, and you know we have uh, Michelle Buster. I think deserves a lot of credit for that. And you probably mm-hmm. had Michelle on your show. Uh, she's the founder of Forever Cheese, major yep. importer distributor. And Michelle goes all over Spain. She never stops traveling all over Spain and Italy looking for uh, new things, persuading small producers that they can export. Uh, she's a master at taking a little regional cheese and putting a name on it that will register with Americans like drunken mm-hmm. goat and, um, and introducing these little regional cheeses to the U.S. Uh, yep. She's yep. Enough. And from Sardinia too, which yep. 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 Kind of personally been taking a deep dive into a uh, Sardinian wine and cheese. What an amazing place. Uh, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about your own personal palate. Uh, what are distinctions you make um, from one cheese to another? That, um, because you, you've tasted so many and then you're putting together these tastings and you're trying to turn people onto cheeses. So what have you learned in terms of distinct, you know, making distinctions between one bloomy rind from another bloomy rind or? Well, I'm kind of, my husband's in the wine business and a winemaker, and he has always described himself and other winemakers as defect tasters. When they taste a wine, the first thing they're doing is looking for flaws. And that, in a way, is how I taste a new cheese. The first thing I'm kind of looking for is, there, is what's wrong with it. That's really interesting. I, you know, I just have to say I haven't heard that before. Well, I, be, I think because that jumps out first. You know, if there's uh-huh. if it's bitter, if the rind is a mess, um, you know, if it's lopsided, whatever the flaw might be, it tends too salty. It tends to jump out at you right away, and then mm-hmm. I look for the you know, for the beautiful features, hopefully there aren't flaws. And then the beautiful features come forth like aroma. uh, That is so important to me. Um, Appearance is important, but aroma is probably uh, more important and a pleasing texture. Uh, And I appreciate cheeses with all different kinds of textures, but you just want it to be pleasing and you want to take another bite. Um, You know, I had a cheese last night. I hadn't had it before, uh, I think it's a pretty new cheese, domestic, and I tasted it, and it was fine. I wouldn't say it had any flaws, except I didn't want any more. Mm. Um, it was very tiring. Um, it didn't have much complexity. It was very sweet, and so uh, after a bite, I didn't want any more. So, you know, that kind of says it all. <laughs> When you teach classes, I've noticed, uh, and, and please, you know, when you answer, tell us a little bit about where it is you're teaching and who you're teaching, but I've noticed that you will often mention online on, you know, on your Instagram, you'll, you'll call out what the favorite was, what the favorite pairing was, what the favorite cheese was. Have you noticed anything over the years about where people's palates are, um, prefer like where do they all lean a certain way or are palettes changing or what have you noticed? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, I do. After a consumer tasting or even a trade tasting, I do like to ask people what their favorite cheese was. And I would say, I almost always know what they're going to choose. <laughs> uh, sometimes they surprise me, but usually they're going to choose the creamiest. Mm-hmm. 
the creamiest. People love creamy. They love triple creams. Uh, they love soft and gooey. And uh, my palate is goes in the other direction. I like hard cheese better. To, mm-hmm. I mean, if I'm going to choose one cheese off a board, it's going to be the hard, cheap cheese. But uh, people like uh, gooey. That's my, and they don't tend to like strong. Yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah, you know, they're not often going to choose the washed rind, but they're going to choose the the gooey, bloomy rind cheese most Interesting. likely. Huh. And has it changed? I don't. I don't. I haven't noticed any changes. Um, I do. You know, I do think consumers are getting much more interested in cheese. That's. It's been fun to watch that. That uh, cheese has become. You know, it's become a thing. It's become a thing to to educate yourself about and to kind of impress your friends with your knowledge about and to put together a beautiful cheese board is now a thing. So I, mm-hmm. I love that. I love watching. <laughs> do you um, do you want to tell us a little bit about where you are teaching for those people who may be in the Bay Area or traveling there? Yeah, sure. I well, uh, I teach anywhere. I mean, I'll go anywhere. Sure, you do it online too, right? I will go anywhere to teach about cheese. But I live in Napa Valley, and so most of the cheese classes I do are around here, often at wineries. Uh, uh, I also have for the, let's see, this is the 12th season of the World Cheese Tour, which is a series that I do in Napa once a month. And uh, it's, I usually have 30 to 40 people and it's lots of fun. It's visitors and locals. And we, uh, they're always themed tastings with wine uh, or once some, once a year I do a beer, cheese and beer tasting, which is my, my love. Um, Mm. And people can sign up online and put JanetFletcher.com. I have the uh, schedule for the world cheese tour on there and the schedule is always in planet cheese. So I would, anybody who's coming to the Bay area, I would love to see you at a world cheese tour class. That's awesome. Do you have any, um, you want to give a shout out to any particular, uh, cheese and beer pairing or cheese and cheese and anything pairing that you tend to, well, you know, Jessica, I've always, I've always said, um, there's no cheese. I can't find a great beer for and I wouldn't say that about wine, but uh-huh, every cheese has its like soulmate in beer. Um, I just mentioned uh, in this conversation the Rock Flower, this new uh, cheese from Switzerland. It's you know it's Alpine. It's uh, like a great uh, Gruyere, uh, and uh, I had it with um, a Belgian strong ale. I had it with uh, excuse me, I had it with a saison, saison Dupont from mm. from Belgium. And that was mm-hmm. fabulous. So, yeah, that to me, the, the aged Alpine uh, cheese is so nutty. They're great with Belgian, uh, you know, Belgian cheeses, uh, Belgian beers of all type, from singles mm-hmm. to doubles to triples. Yeah. And the DuPont is like as classic as you can get. Oh, <laughs> it is so good. And for those uh, people out there who are not receiving Planet cheese they need to fix that immediately how can they sign up for your thank you yeah uh, of course it's free of course uh you can unsubscribe at any time uh but i hope you won't and it's uh you can go to janetfletcher.com and you will see a um, sign up opportunity for planet cheese it's once a week sometimes recipes sometimes new cheeses i've discovered cheese issues 
uh, you know, whatever kind of crosses my my desk that week that I want to write about. But I love introducing people to new cheese, and I love getting ideas from readers about what to write about. That's awesome. Well, Janet, I want to thank you for kicking off 2024 with Cutting the Curd. It was so wonderful to talk with you. And I look forward to running into you in person, in real life, at one of the many cheese-centric conference gatherings <laughs> this year. Um, and, I, and I wish you a very happy new year. And thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jessica. It's been a real pleasure. All right. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another another episode of Cutting the Curd on Heritage Radio Network. You can find us at heritageradionetwork.org. You can also listen to us on your favorite streaming platform. Please leave us a review and some stars because it really helps people find us and it means a lot to us. Thanks and can't wait to have you join me again soon. Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.